Stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. In part one of the Windsor Spree Killer, From Horrific to Surreal, we took a look at Matthew Charles Lamb and the fateful day that he became Canada's first spree killer. But his story didn't end with his arrest. It continued in directions that were, frankly, unbelievable. Sitting in his holding cell and awaiting trial, there were only two options for Matthew Lamb, execution or life in prison. And as far as open and shut cases go, this was definitely one of them. So you would think, in part two of the Windsor Spree Killer from Horrific to Surreal, we speak again with Will Toffin, author of Watching the Devil Dance, to find out how Matthew Charles Lamb spent the rest of his very short yet very chaotic life. Here's your host, Haley Chang. Matthew Lamb's arrest was much more peaceful than what you'd expect, considering his prior plans for ambush and the fact that he was only hours removed from shooting four people. When the trial started, there was no, is he guilty, is he not? That ship had sailed. He was caught dead to rights. So Lamb's lawyer went for the best case scenario, an insanity plea, to achieve a much more comfortable sentence. It was a really brave and a really risky strategy that Saul Nosenchuk, who would go on to become a, 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 a magistrate here in Windsor and serve faithfully for, for decades, very well, highly respected lawyer. He was just a young attorney, defense criminal attorney at the time, trying to get his practice going. And he took the job pro bono, uh, didn't charge a cent, but he he did a, he gave him a fantastic defense. I mean, it was a million dollar defense, um, but everyone assumed and the prosecution assumed that this guy was going to be, he was going to be found guilty of, of first degree homicide, you know, and he would be getting and in those days, 1966, if you were if you were convicted of a of homicide, you were you were uh, you were given the death penalty automatic. It was an automatic hanging offense. He he decided that he would try an insanity defense that that was the only way he could possibly win or, or get any sort of win out of this trial and save you know save Lamb from either being you know imprisoned for the rest of his life or hanging hanging at the end of a rope. Insanity wasn't an easy thing to prove. And the use of this defense wasn't common at the time. As Will said, it was a risky approach. Saul had to prove Lamb couldn't comprehend his crime and couldn't distinguish between right and wrong because of a mental disorder, even though most parts of this crime would point to the fact that he could. It showed like, much like he did in uh, two years previously in 64 that he was mission-oriented. Uh, in fact, he even admitted it after he was arrested for the, for the 1960s spree killings. He even told the police, he said, when they're asking him about his motive, he said, oh yeah, I did the same thing before. I mean, he admitted it. This is before his trial. The, the amazing thing about his trial, the most significant thing about his trial is not so much that he was he was acquitted on insanity, is that it changed how Canadian law interprets legal insanity. What we determine as legal insanity. Insanity being a legal term, not a psychological or a medical term. Uh, no such medical term as insanity. It's a legal term. It was Lamb's case that would set the case law precedent for Canada changing its interpretation of criminal insanity from a very a more strict to more I would call liberal interpretation, open interpretation. Depends on what your personal perspective and ideology is, but it did make that change. And um, and whether you you know you think that was a good thing or a bad thing, 
Uh, that's that's up to person. I guess your your own personal opinion. He clearly had a motive, and as far as spree killers go, they tend to have a goal in mind. Could Lamb's lawyer prove otherwise? One thing we know about spree killers since then, of course, we're going back 55 years now, what 56 years, is that spree killers are very mission oriented. They know exactly what they're doing, and they put a lot of thought into it before they do it. Whether it turns out the way they want is another matter, but they definitely know what they're doing. Even in his trial, it came out he was very cold and calculating. Like he was in control of his faculties. He did admit, and one thing I, which is true, he did admit to a sense of disassociation. That's where people who commit horrible crimes will often say when they're questioned by the police or when they confess, they'll say, "You know,、uh, it was like watching a movie. It was like watching someone else did it, I, but I knew it was me." But it was like me watching someone else do it, and that Matthew Lamb did attest to that, and that's true. But that still does not does not constitute mental illness. It's almost probably when they talk about disassociative disorder. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but just from my research I've done, it's a way of distancing themselves a little bit from a crime they know they're committing, but it in no way alleviates them、uh, from responsibility. He was basically acquitted on the fact that he had a psychopathic personality, and psychopathic personalities does not、uh, condemn you to a life of violence. I mean, psychopaths are one out of every one hundred people, but the vast majority of them do not commit crimes. They're not criminals. They're not. They're not spree killers, but they do have a lack of affect, meaning they they have all the range of emotions except for empathy, sympathy, and guilt. And Matthew Lamb was definitely a psychopath, and he admitted it his whole life. He never made any,、uh, he never tried to hide the fact、uh, that he was a psychopath. He, he knew quite, he was quite clear about that. His defense enlisted a team of witnesses, doctors that interviewed him while he was at the Kingston Pen, as well as expert psychiatric witnesses. They all testified that Lamb was incoherent when committing the crime, having a psychiatric episode. He had a very good lawyer. Uh, they basically, and he had much more defense witnesses from、uh, the psychiatric community than the prosecution had. So it was a battle of the psychiatrists. And one thing about insanity pleas that most lawyers know or should know is that it's the quantity. It, it, it is the quantity of, of probability that counts. Meaning, the more the more people you can introduce, or the more. Excuses or the more possibilities you can introduce, that's how you win insanity pleas. And the, the, I, Eugene Deshane, the Crown Prosecutor, he's very skilled. He had a lot of notches on his belt, but I think he forgot that basic principle. Although Lamb won his case using the insanity plea, it wasn't as much of a victory as you might think. Early 1967, after the conclusion of his trial, he was driven up to the Oak Ridge facility for the criminal, criminally insane and penitentiary. It was just torn down a few years ago, but at that time it was the only facility of its kind in Canada. That's where they kept the most ruthless, most dangerous criminals we had. And Matthew Lamb was sent there for an indeterminate period of time. Now, prior to Matthew Lamb's crimes, like prior to 1966, a murderer had never been released from the Oak Ridge facility for the criminally insane. Someone who committed. Uh, it was considered criminally insane, and it committed murder. They basically spent their lives on hospital grounds, and that was. And most people,、uh, even prosecutors, were quite happy with that with that outcome. But what the prosecution and everyone else in the case didn't know was that Lamb was going to Oak Ridge during a very peculiar time in the institution's history. In 1965, a guy by the name of T. Elliot Barker and his boss Boyd decide that. 
have come to the conclusion they've done a lot of studying on uh, psychopathy and what they believe makes a, a psychopath tick. And Barker was of the opinion that psychopathy and even schizophrenia, this is wrong, we know that now, but at that time we didn't know this. He thought these two disorders were based on the inability of the afflicted individual to, to, to personally connect. They just, they could not connect on an emotional level. So he came up with a bunch of bizarre experiments, a lifestyle where he would force these guys to communicate. It was sort of like a, an alcoholic 12-step meeting, only with a lot of antagonism and violence involved. And I go into that in the book. Being, he believed that these these disorders like psychopathy were, were root, deep-rooted in the subconscious of the individual. He believed that there had been one seminal event in the individual's childhood that they had suppressed that had led from them going from a you know a normal uh, a normal pathology into a psychopathic personality and he believed that they this was a suppressed event and he thought that by using a lot of drugs lsd or acid which was a big hit in those days but lsd um scopolamine uh, not, uh truth serum that the Nazis had developed in the 19, uh, 1940s. Just a whole modicum of drugs. The drugs were an absolute free-for-all. LSD was made available by request. If a patient wanted some, all they had to do was ask. And if they didn't want their medication, that wasn't an option. They'd get their next meal with a little splash of miscellaneous drugs. And mostly methamphetamine, because he believed that the amphetamines, because they met Amphetamines make you up, hyper. They make you want to talk. You become very talkative if you're if you're on speed, right? What we used to call speed back in the day. But it's, it's amphetamines, and he believed that that would those 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 drugs combined with a, a disciplined regimen uh, of interacting with other psychopaths would lead to just a, a cathartic moment where it would come. The individual would realize, or it would come out, what event had triggered this individual turning into a, into a psychopathic personality. Of course, it was all nonsense, but at the time, nobody knew. We were, um, you know, psychopathy was, the, the, the research into psychopathy was still in its fundamental rudimentary stages. Matthew Lamb took to the program. He was, uh, he became a big star at, uh, at the Oak Ridge facility. He became, uh, he was personally befriended by Boyd, by, Bar by T. Elliot Barker in charge. He was well-liked by everyone else. He was considered a true leader. He took to the program, you know, and new, new abductees. He'd be the guy to kind of bully the new guys into, uh, you know, getting into line with the program. Lamb was such an enviable psych ward patient. He actually got a promotion of sorts. He became a patient therapist. Matthew Lamb got a position, his very first position of authority, of authority anywhere, was at Oak Ridge when he became what we call a patient therapist. So at the age of 20, he's only 20 years old. He has a grade nine education, good, good high IQ. But I mean, grade nine education, 20 years old. He's made a patient therapist, put in charge of group sessions, you know, like group uh, therapy sessions of the most dangerous criminals in the country. Not only that, he's also prescribing medication for these people. He doesn't have any background in medication whatsoever been in the program for a year and Boyd and uh, and Barker had such confidence in him 
that they would actually, he would actually have access to these drugs. He could prescribe medication, and then and then Barker would, after the fact, you know, just check it off later. You know, I mean, so it was it was a bit of a free for all. Nobody understands the mind of a psychopathic murderer better than someone else similarly afflicted. So he puts them in charge. It actually led to by the security personnel became so concerned. I mean, they're having mass LSD freakouts uh, under the auspices of Barker's successor by the name of a Dr. Gary Meyer, who was a he was a bit of a hippie. He walked around barefooted. He kissed people. He's kind of a strange guy, but. Uh, Highly qualified, but also he, he took it to a whole new level. And uh, and it, it just terrified the people in charge of the facility to the point where they locked it out. They wouldn't allow anyone in or out. And Meyer was even, and it led to Meyer and his crew being uh, transferred out of there and Oak Ridge facility going back to its old standard use of uh, tranquilizers and electroconvulsive therapy. Shock therapy. The patient therapist program wasn't specific to Matthew Lamb. It was used other times in which other patients were entrusted with the mental well-being of other fellow patients. One of which happened to be William Brennan, a two-time convicted rapist who became a patient therapist to female patients. An absurdly terrible idea. He eventually fathered a child with a patient while in Oak Ridge. While patient therapists weren't the only horrible thing put in place at this time, there were a few other very questionable treatments that Barker used on patients like Matthew Lamb, one of which was the capsule program, where up to seven patients were locked in an extremely small cell with no windows that was lit at all times. They were fed through tiny little straws that came through small holes in the wall. The kicker was that they were all mandatorily naked. Despite all of this, Lamb became the first capital murderer to be deemed cured, and released from Oak Ridge facility under the condition that he would work and live with Dr. Barker. While he lived with the Barkers, he was already planning his next move. Matthew Lamb also had a lot of, uh, he had his own personal agenda, but he had always wanted to be a mercenary. And he never gave up that, even though he was doing, even as he was doing well in the program. And he was eventually released in 1973 on, and allowed to live with Boyd, the head of the uh, Oak Ridge facility, program, the director of the program, he lived in, with Boyd on his farm with his family for a year before going overseas to become a mercenary. He tried to get into the Israeli forces, even going to the point of buying Israeli war bonds for about a year and a half prior to his release. But they turned him down. For whatever reason, they turned him down. He says he gave up. He just didn't like the attitude of the Israeli soldiers. It's possible. It seems more likely that he either the uh, psychological exams or that uh, the Israelis just didn't want him. And he ended up in South Africa where he heard that uh, Rhodesia, which is modern-day Zimbabwe in East, in Southeast Africa, which was then a white minority ruled regime, much like South Africa, he heard they were hiring mercenaries because they had a lot of uh, black African nationalist guerrillas, communist guerrilla groups trying to overthrow the government. And he would go on to become a celebrated mercenary in, in Rhodesia before finally meeting his fate exactly 10 years after he's committed those horrible murders, street killings here in Windsor. Not surprisingly, being a mercenary was something that Lamb thrived at. He was really held in high regard by the fellow, by the, his fellow mercenaries, but when he was killed in, in uh, by friendly fire in 1976 in, in Rhodesia, the president of Rhodesia, 
insisted because of the death of a, of a trooper, of a, especially an SAS trooper, in those days was big news in Rhodesia, it's a small country. So he was given a, a, hero, a hero's funeral. I mean, the whole shebang pulled down the streets of Harare, down the main street in a, you know, a wagon with uh, horses and uh, you know, the, the garland flowers and the golden casket. And uh, his, all, all the military uh, followed him to the, uh, to the graveyard. He was cremated uh, to the sounds of when the saints go marching in and his ashes sent back to Windsor. As strange as it is, when this book came out in 2020, it was just back in February of this year. So we're talking 50 years, 50 years after he became a mercenary. I was given, I, 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 a fellow sent me an email asking me where, what happened to Matthew Lamb's body. And I said, well, he was cremated and uh, he was buried in a, uh, reputedly from my sources. He was buried where his grandmother was buried. His ashes were laid next to his grandmother. Perhaps the only person in, he ever had any real empathy or real feelings for, or and also the only person that ever showed him any real love. So this fella, so he said, well, where is the grave? I said, well, it's here in Windsor. And he said, well, where specifically? So I asked him, I said, well, why do you want to know this? And it turns out, he said, he represented a group of uh, mercenaries, guys now in their 80s and 90s, who wanted to know the exact grave site so they could uh, contribute to a monument in Matthew Lamb's honor. It, I mean, wrap your head around that for a minute. This is Canada's first spree killer. There may be the funding, but there is a near 0% chance a Matthew Lamb monument will be going up in Windsor. You'd have to think. A monument would be very disrespectful to the people affected by the spree killing. A complete disregard to the damage done and the families hurt by this incident. People are still affected even today by the crimes committed on that June night. One of the survivors who was there, one of the six the six pedestrians that were walking up the street when Matthew Lamb, the ones Matthew Lamb, initially turned his guns on Vincent Franco who's still he's still alive in Windsor here uh he never really got over it he suffered from back then we didn't have we didn't have trauma counselors you know like policemen or victims were just expected to get on with their life and that was you know that was it there was no such thing as trauma counseling or PTSD identification it was just uh you know you just dealt with it and that's it so it, it, it affected all of the survivors, like even Grace Dunlop, the 19-year-old girl who was shot in through the screen door of her house. She contacted me from Florida. She said, thank you so much for telling this story. None of them, none, nobody ever involved ever really got over it. When something this traumatic happens to a community, it is never going to be forgotten. That is why it was so important to Will Toffin to give the story the justice it deserves. A little piece of closure to the events of that day. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Cheng. It was produced by Craig Needles and written by Patrick Magamans. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.